I do not believe for an instant that I became a Christian when I became Catholic. I mean, I, I know before God, before all of mankind, I know that for 20 years before I became Catholic, I knew Jesus Christ and I belonged to him and I experienced his grace in my life. And so this gives me tremendous sympathy for Protestants that we become involved with. And this is really the heart of our ministry here at the Coming Home Network is to be able to have that love and that sympathy. Hello and welcome to another frequent episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken and Kenny. I'm Matt Swaim along with my colleagues, Ken Hensley and Kenny Burchard. We all came from various backgrounds and ended up in the Catholic Church, and that's kind of our deal here at the Coming Home Network, is to help others who are similar to us at various (laughs) stages in their journey and exploration of the Catholic faith. Uh, This show and all the resources we provide are made available through our generous partners in mission. And if you want to join that partnership, please do come visit us at chnetwork.org slash donate. Find those free resources by just plain old going to chnetwork.org. And you can even plug into our online community, which is full of all kinds of people uh, having these kind of conversations (laughs) together. That's community.chnetwork.org. Org. Gentlemen, how are you? I'm doing good. You sound so serious today. I'm really enjoying it. I think it's because you started twice and blew it and you decided to start a third time. And when you came on, it was like, hello and welcome to it. It was like really forceful. <laughs> I like it. Getting right into it. I like it. You notice I, you notice I said a frequent episode, even though we've like yeah. missed a couple of weeks because everybody's been traveling and on retreats. So that's right. It's it's like the, third ser- like the third sermon in a mega church. Uh, third service it's the best one you know it's the best yeah, one really really <laughs> i could have said infrequent but frankly i frankly i don't know no. what the frequency is kenneth's and i've been waiting 130 some episodes to use that joke so we are talking about the church today as we have been throughout the course of this entire series and we're getting into yep. some stuff that uh catholics say about the church pretty much every time we go to church uh, in the Nicene Creed. So, Ken Hensley, where are we starting things off today? Well, where we frequently... No. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're talking about the church. Anyway, we're at a spot that I really enjoy now in the catechism's unfolding of this thing. What we're doing is we're, we're working through the catechism's treatment of Article 9 of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And today, we begin looking at what are referred to as the four marks of the church. Now, this four marks, this is not something that comes from the Apostles' Creed, which simply says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, um, but from uh, the creed that came out of those great ecumenical councils of the fourth century, the Council of Nicaea 325, the Council of Constantinople 381, um, that the creed that we recite every Sunday morning or every Sunday in Mass which says, it doesn't say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Instead, it says, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, the four marks. Now, notice briefly here at the beginning that between the Apostles' Creed, no one knows exactly when the Apostles' Creed was first written, but it's early. Between the Apostles' Creed and this fourth century creed from Nicaea and Constantinople, Notice that an expansion of the language used to describe the church has taken place. Why do you think that is? Matt, you want to take a shot at it? Well, because maybe, like with everything else, (laughs) you only have to make a rule or add a word when someone challenges things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, What we have is we have the rise of particular heresies that are threatening to divide the church And so as time goes by, the church feels the need to elaborate and state, not only is the church holy, not only is it Catholic, including everyone, but the church is one. It's not many churches, and the church is apostolic. So 
This is what we're going to dig into. And let me begin by reading paragraph 811 today from the Catechism. This is the sole Church of Christ, which in the Creed we profess to be one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. These four characteristics, inseparably linked with each other, indicate essential features, these are four marks, essential features of the church and her mission. The church does not possess them of herself, important point to make. It is Christ who through the Holy Spirit makes his church one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. And it is he, that is Christ, who calls her to realize each of these qualities. And so I just want to make one point quickly here at the beginning. And this really is the burden of the next paragraph, 812, which I'm not going to read. And, and it's this, while, while oneness, while holiness, while Catholicity and apostolicity, while these are, to quote, essential features of the church and her mission, in other words, they're objectively in the church. They can be seen, they're manifested in history, and they bear witness to the truthfulness of the Catholic faith. Um, because of human weakness, because of sin, these four marks never reveal themselves as they ought to. They don't reveal themselves as clearly as they might. And so they are qualities the church, uh, paragraph 811 said, are called to realize in her life. Okay? They exist objectively within the church. They are marks. They are essential features of the church. But some looking at the church might say, I don't see it because of weakness, because of sin, we are called to realize them in our lives. So anyway, we're going to look at these four marks, starting with the first one today, focusing on the church's oneness. Uh, any comments on this introduction before we throw it over to Kenny to take it away? So this is one of those episodes where uh, we could just read straight from the catechism the whole time. It'd be a pretty doggone good episode. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I'm, I'm hesitant yeah. to say anything because the, the church herself says some enormous and beautiful things in these next several paragraphs. Yeah. Yeah. I would add a couple of things here before we dig into the, the meat that's coming. And that is that I can remember before I was Catholic um, many times, especially early in my, my Christian life, reading the Nicene Creed for its Trinitarian formulas, but not really digging down into its e ecclesial teaching or its teaching about the church. And, um, and I remember saying the Nicene Creed in public worship gatherings. I don't know, probably Matt, you would have said it as a Methodist. Is that, is that right in, in your liturgy? Would it, would it have been part of Very occasionally as a free Methodist. Yeah. I don't remember much about it as a United Methodist, and it was not something that we yeah. did as a Nazarene. Um, with okay. any kind of like memory of no. mine. Well, I, I remember saying this creed several times. In fact, before we became Catholic, we were attending an Anglican church for a while. And this creed was part of the liturgy. It was, it was professed together. And we'd get to this one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And, um, that it just made me think, wow, I, I really need to unpack my ecclesiology in the light of the Nicene Creed. Because I think, if I'm right about this, many evangelical Protestants like me would appreciate uh, uh, the Nicene Creed for its Trinitarian dogma, but maybe not so much for its ecclesial dogma, which is what this is. This is the unchanging, inalterable, um, binding teaching of the Catholic Church about its own nature. And it needs to be worked through carefully and embraced for what the council fathers, the people who wrote this creed, what they meant by these four words. And oftentimes in worship gatherings that I was part of as a Protestant evangelical, there were asterisks next to some of these words where later definitions that weren't held by the men who wrote these words meant by them. So I'm looking for, and I don't know if you ex experienced that too, you guys, but it's, it's just important to get this, to get this right. That'll definitely come up when we <laughs> get to the third mark of the church, the church is Catholic. Exactly that's right. for sure. <clears throat> but the, the one thing, and we pointed this out, um, both in our series that Ken and I did on authority, as well as the one on Sola Scriptura, it is interesting that the church says, 
that the church is one, right, through this Nicene Constantinople creedal formula, before the mm-hmm. church says that the Bible is one book, right? It's just, it's fascinating to me that this is something that Fact. is part of the ecclesiology before there is like an established, like formalized, like set in stone canon of the New Testament. So just want to throw that out there in the mix. That's of really good. But That's really, really true. Really good. Yeah, I, I agree with you there, uh, Matt. Kenny, why don't you begin unpacking the next section for us, beginning with paragraph 813. I'll do it. In this section, the heading of the catechism is, The Church is One, uh, The Sacred Mystery of the Church's Unity. Now, there again is that word mystery that we've said in previous episodes is going to recur over and over and over in the section on the church, which means that it's something that had God not revealed it, we would not see it. And so the church's oneness is is revealed by God. And here in paragraph 813, we read this. The church is one because of her source. The highest exemplar and source of this mystery is the unity in the trinity of persons of one God, the Father and the Son, in the Holy Spirit. The church is one because of her founder, for the word made flesh, the Prince of Peace, reconciled all men to God by the cross, restoring the unity of all in one people and one body. The church is one because of her soul. It is the Holy Spirit dwelling in those who believe and pervading and ruling over the entire church, who brings about that wonderful communion of the faithful and joins them together so that intimately in Christ, that he is the principle of the church's unity. Unity is of the essence of the church. Let me finish this paragraph, but we got to go back now. What an astonishing mystery, it goes on to say. There is one father of the universe, one logos of the universe, and also one Holy Spirit. Everywhere one and the same, there is also one virgin become mother, and I should like to call her church. A few thoughts here, and then a question for you guys. The thoughts are these. The basis of the unity, the revelation of the, the unity of the church, is bound up in three big ideas here uh, in this section of the Catechism. First, into the family of the Trinity. The idea is this. God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is one. One God. And so the very nature of God is this unity of persons, Mm -hmm. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And since the church is caught up into the life of the Trinity, brought into union with the Trinity, the church then necessarily takes Mm -hmm. on the nature of God with respect to its own uh, relationship to its Mm -hmm. members and to God who who begets the church, who brings the church about. And then the second idea there is into the body of the Son. So brought up into the life of the Trinity, but then brought into the body of the Son, the body of the Son, which Mm -hmm. is a heaven and earth body a god man body this is these are things that you know some some people might think of being in polarity with each other god and humanity or things in heaven and things on earth but in the body of the sun and then even uh, other um, people groups you know in dissonance with one another in polarity with one another brought into union into the one body of jesus which is mm-hmm. a heaven and earth body drawing all people into himself And then finally, and third, into the shared life of the Holy Spirit, who comes into the life of each Christian and and bonds us to God. So our unity is very Trinitarian, and and it's it's very Christological, it's very pneumatological, uh, uh, bound up in the Holy Spirit. But and so, and so therefore, to work against unity, you could say is to work against God. To work against unity is anti-Christ, you, you could say. 
And then to work against unity is to resist the Holy Spirit, who is bringing about unity in the whole human race mm -hmm. through the church. But I want to ask you guys a question about this last little phrase at the end of the, the main part yeah. of the paragraph there. It says, unity is of the essence of the church. Now, Ken and I looked at this yesterday, and I mean, I, my, my mouth fell open and I said, Ken, if I had walked up to you, you know, Baptist Pastor Ken, and said to you, you know, stick a mic in your face, hey, Ken, what's the essence of the church? What's the essence of the church? What would you have said? Would you have said unity? Um, so I, I won't tell you what I, what I would have no. said yet, but how about you guys? What, if someone said, what's the essence of the church? What would you, what would you have said? Um, I don't know that I've been able to answer that, <laughs> but I can say this, like what would, uh, what would an Israelite pray when they woke up every morning? Right. What would they pray actually a few times a day? Yeah. They would have said, hero Israel, what? The Lord, right, our right. God is one. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And you know, not, not to double back too far on that idea of, you know, Ken, you were saying that, you know, Jesus is not a polygamist, that his bride ought to be one too. I mean, there, I, I keep on thinking mm -hmm. back at, as, as you're reading this paragraph, uh, Kenny, to the episode we did a couple of uh, weeks ago about the idea as the Holy Spirit dwelling in the church as sort of like this temple theology and all that. And if you mm -hmm. could sum up that whole episode in a single sentence, it's that what the soul is to the human body the Holy yeah. Spirit is to the body of Christ, which is the church. And mm -hmm. while while we might not have articulated that, we would have wanted that to be true, right? Like, I would have wanted that to be true. Mm -hmm. uh, I wouldn't have known how to make it happen, maybe get us all to sort of agree on a set of first principles or something. But but there's something, I think, in, in most Christians that, that has a frustration when they see movements that push against this movements that divide mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um i don't think that mm -hmm. you could pin down the average evangelical christian and, and get them to say that unity is of the essence of the church uh but they would say like it's really important for christians to get along <laughs> you know i mean you could probably get yeah, that out of yeah. somebody sure yeah i'm not sure the the reason i was mumbling away when you asked that question is I, i'm not really sure how i would have answered it of course when i hear this paragraph from the catechism kenny um that, that the unity of the church, the oneness of the church is rooted in the very oneness of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it, it jumps out as making perfect sense. I think of Paul in, in, in Acts 17 talking about how God is made of one blood, all men to, to dwell upon the face of the earth. You know, we're one family under God. And then, of course, yeah. I think of Jesus praying in John 17, Father, that they may be one even as you mm -hmm. and I are one, so mm -hmm. so that the world may know. So it, it makes perfect sense as I read it. But of course, I couldn't have believed that oneness was of the essence of the church when I was a Baptist, because I just knew that the church was divided up into all of these different versions. And they weren't right. just versions like, they, they weren't just like flavors at, a, you know, 31 flavors or something like that. They actually contradicted one another and often... Uh, you know, and tried to steal sheep from one another and argued incessantly. So I I could not have believed that oneness was of the essence unless I defined it very narrowly, meaning the oneness of right. everyone who loves Jesus, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Let me just add one other quick thing to this. I wouldn't have had like a theology of like theosis or divinization or anything, but what I ever said, like, yeah. it is important for me as a Christian to be one with God, one with Christ. And I would say to you- yeah. As a Christian, you need to be one with Christ. But I would not have known how to articulate how that would have made each of us one with one another, uh, yeah. if that makes sense. Like, I would have said, you be yeah. one over there, I'll be one with mm -hmm. Christ over here. But I wouldn't have understood how, like, we would all be, like, right. mm -hmm. part right. of that same kind of thing. Yeah, and I think probably in a lot of the groups that I hung out with, and, and maybe maybe I myself would have said something like, like I would have tapped into kind of a reductionistic uh, approach to this and just said, well, it's just we're one be if we all believe in Jesus, you know, which right, isn't right. Right. It, it isn't that that is not true, but boy, I mean, you have to at least say that much, but you can say a heck of a lot more. 
And speaking of <laughs> saying a lot more, here's how the catechism kind of drives us forward. Because now there's kind of this intuitive thing that somebody wants to ask, well, then why is there so much diversity? You know, if, if we're one, mm -hmm. if we're all one, then how do we account for big and small differences that we see, even within the Catholic Church, but uh, in, in larger ways as well? And so here the catechism takes up the answer to this intuitive question. Paragraph 814. From the beginning, in case you wonder how long this has been going on, from the beginning, this one church has been marked by a great diversity, which comes from both the variety of God's gifts and the diversity of those who receive them. Within the unity of the people of God, a multiplicity of peoples and cultures is gathered together. Among the church's members, there are different gifts, offices, conditions, and ways of life holding a rightful place in the communion of the church. There are also particular churches that retain their own traditions. The great richness of such diversity is not opposed to the church's unity. Yet sin and the burden of its consequences constantly threaten the gift of unity. And so the apostle has to exhort Christians to maintain the mm -hmm. unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Uh, just a couple thoughts here and then toss it to you guys. I think I've said before that my concept of the unity and diversity of the church, I, I couldn't escape the fact that there were so many doctrinal differences uh, among us. And so my tendency when thinking about diversity, um, and, and you guys may think differently. We've talked about this a little bit in the past. I wrestled with this concept of diversity theologically because I saw it everywhere. I saw that in my congregation, I preached X is true. And down the street, someone might preach X is false, you know, some theological idea. And not knowing how to resolve all of that all the time, I figured, well, how can we really know? I think I'm right. I think he's wrong. Maybe this is just part of diversity. And, um, and here the catechism is not making that move. It's not saying diversity of belief, desert, mm -hmm. diversity of doctrine, diversity of uh, convictions about what is and isn't true. It's saying diversity of gifts and diversity of people. The only way mm -hmm. to reconcile all of this is with Paul's body ecclesiology, which we've talked about already, that a lot of different things in an organistic and interdependent relationship mm -hmm. can be one and yet be very diverse as long as they're working together for the overall function of the body. And from my perspective, one of my laments, you know, while I was in a Protestant evangelical e ecclesial model <laughs> of different kinds of models is that I just couldn't I couldn't ever iron out the fact that there were all of these huge and small doctrinal differences that weren't just diverse. They were contrary to one another mm -hmm. in, in dissonant mm -hmm. ways, discordant ways. And that's as much as I'll say. Well, right I, I love what these two paragraphs do because the first one talks about the, this essential feature, this essential mark of the church as being one in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit one and then the the next paragraph says okay but we're talking about people from all over the world <laughs> people who mm -hmm. look different people who mm -hmm. speak different languages people who come with different cultures and they bring the expressions of their their homes their nations their cultures right. the ways they dress the ways they sing the way they the things that they do they that is all brought into the church which reminds me of that statement is it Chesterton, here comes everybody, his definition of the Catholic Church. Somebody, I think it's Chesterton. James Joyce. James Joyce, here comes everybody, all right? right everybody. Right. And, I, and I remember loving that when Tina and I first became Catholic and we, we were attending St. Charles Borromeo, a large Catholic parish in North, North Hollywood. And I look around and there was like Africans sitting over here dressed in these bright colors with these hu humongous, you know, uh, headpieces going up. And there's there's this there's that there's all kinds there's just all kinds of people. Whereas the church I pastor was very homogeneous, 
And so I love that. Here comes everybody. But you're right, Kenny. He's not saying here comes everybody and we have five contradictory doctrines on baptism, five on the the Lord's Supper. We can't decide whether people can lose their salvation or not. You know, we're not talking about that kind of diversity. Um, Right. And on the other hand, we're not talking about, oh, yeah, they've got voodoo. You know, their Catholicism down in Haiti has voodoo blended in. Isn't this beautiful? No, there are syncretistic things that can come in in these various places that are bad. We're not talking about that either. But go ahead, Matt. You want to say something? Okay, so I just, a little background on me. I don't know if you can see above me. Those are my my Bible quizzing trophies up there. Until yeah, I, I see the trophies. And exchange them for a crown one day. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. so one of the Bible years that we did for the Nazarene Northwest Ohio Youth Bible Quizzing thing with the regional competition at Mount Vernon Nazarene College was we quizzed on the prison epistles and we would like memorize these things up and down. So in paragraph 814, when it says sin and the burden of its consequences constantly threaten the gift of unity. And so the apostle, meaning Paul, the apostle has to exhort Christians to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And my Bible quizzer body wants to just keep going and just say, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and, and, and on and on and on. And when you go on, in the context of what the catechism is saying, how is explaining, you know, the what is causing rupture and unity? Later in Ephesians 4, Paul goes on to talk about like some stuff. But he doesn't say it was he who gave some to be water baptizers, uh, and some to be predestinationalists, and some to be free will people, and some to be people who believed, you know, in cooperation with salvation and some who believed in, in uh, you know, unconditional election. No, when he talks about diversity in the body of, Christ, body of Christ, he's talking about the spiritual gifts, as you were just mentioning, Kenny. He's exactly. talking about, he gave some to be apostles and prophets and teachers and so on and so forth. Uh, right. Maybe diversity right. of emphasis, but not diversity. It's one Lord, one faith, one yeah. baptism, which I didn't understand what that meant, right? But yeah, and this is, one and this is Father, exactly one over and over and over and over again. Yeah, this is exactly where eight fifteen goes. That that Kenny will be taking in a moment, I guess. But that yes, this is where eight fifteen goes. After talking about diversity, then it says, "Well, what are the bonds of unity?" Then, yeah, let me let me jump into that paragraph, guys. Eight fifteen be- begins this way: What are these bonds of unity? Above all, charity—that's the Catholic word for love—binds everything together in perfect harmony. But the unity of the Pilgrim Church is also assured by visible bonds of communion. So this is important. It's not just a feeling, and it's just not love in our hearts, but there are visible bonds of unity, and the Catechism gives us three. First, profession of one faith. So what uh, Matt just talked about, one faith received from the apostles. Two, common celebration of divine worship, especially the sacraments. And then third, apostolic succession through the sacrament of holy orders, maintaining the fraternal concord of God's family. The most I'll say here, guys, is this is an anecdote from my own life. A few weeks ago, we were visited by some friends from California who worked previously with my wife in the university. We took them to the beach nearby my house. And we were walking along, and the guy says to me, well, I'll call him Dave. That's not his name, a real guy, but I'll call him Dave. Dave says to me, so you've become Catholic. And we talked quite a lot about this, and I mentioned this idea of one faith. And he said, well, what, well, like, what, what do you think the big differences are? And I rattled off a few disparate um, theological positions that are held by different groups, kind of like the ones you just rattled off, Matt. And he said, like his reflex was to say to me, well, maybe that should just tell us how unimportant those things are after all. And then he kind of nodded to himself like he had a good thought. And I said, really? Like how you even become a Christian? (laughs) How you actually become a Christian would seem to be an unimportant thought? And because there's a big disagreement there. And so here the catechism wants to really resist that temptation and make that move and, and to make unimportant big 
big things, for instance, how you even become a Christian. So we have this one faith that mm -hmm. we all must profess together. Yeah, and, and Matt, Matt was digging into Ephesians chapter 4 a moment ago. Well, Paul goes on there to talk about Christ giving gifts to his church, pastors and teachers, specifically to build the church up as one, to build the church up in unity. And, and he says, so that the children of God would not be blown about by every wind and wave of doctrine. And, you know, I, I've right. told this many times that I, I'll make it very, very quick, but this is one of the things, you guys, that blew me. <laughs> I shouldn't use that after saying every wind and wave of doctrine that blew me into the Catholic <laughs> Church was, was, the realiza was the realization that unless the pastors and teachers Paul's describing— scattered all over the world, in every country, and among every people, language, tongue, tribe, all of that, unless they have, unless they are all bound to one basic system of doctrine, mm -hmm. then their teaching will be precisely doing what Paul doesn't want. It will be blowing people about by every wind and wave of doctrine, which is exactly what yes. I saw in the, in the um, Protestant evangelical world. I mean, you've got people yes. out there teaching anything and everything, and the children of God are blown about, and they don't know what to believe. They don't know what to think. And so then they think they all have to become scholars, and they have to pile up all these books and start studying to try and figure out, are the Baptists right, or the Presbyterians, or the Pentecostal, you know, blah, 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 on and on and on. You know, Paul says, Christ gave these gifts to the church to build up the mm -hmm. church in unity. Only possible. It can only happen if Paul is mm -hmm. assuming that there will be an authoritative body of doctrine that will bind them all together. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is important. This is big. And if, and if I could give like a little rebuttal to your friend, uh, Dave, as it were, like, I don't want to be too hard on him because I've made that argument before. He's like, <laughs> right. It's like, right. It's intuitive. Yeah, I can call it's you Kenny. intuitive, isn't it? And Kenny, when you call me, you can call me Dave. Yes. That's um, right. But, um, he was his longtime pal. Uh, so at any rate, I've made that argument before, right? When I was in that headspace mm -hmm. that like maybe these things don't really matter in the first place. Uh, well, that's one thing when you're talking about like some of these like doctrines and minutiae that divide denominations down on the ground level where people are going to church. But you can, I, like, we've all been around seminaries and know that the doctrinal disputes in those places are, you know, not sometimes like, should you be baptized through immersion or sprinkling, but rather is Jesus God, <laughs> right? And like, at what point <laughs> yeah, are you yeah. able to say like, where's, at, at what point do you say, well, this part, it does matter. Like, and mm -hmm. who gets to say that and how, right? You have to have mm -hmm. some kind of something somewhere that is one enough to say, that's a line we can't cross. Yeah, uh, I mean, for sure. otherwise you end up with like something, I mean, we've, we've hovered around seminary. We've heard the stories from the people who come to us who've been pastors formed in certain seminaries and like, the you know seminary formation they end up with it leaves them very disillusioned. Like they essentially get profs saying, yeah. "Well, maybe the real Christianity is just the friendships we made along the way, right?" Like it's just it can be so diluted and <laughs> yeah. dissipated that unless you have something that like guards and 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 keeps and protects that like something like a guardian of the deposit of faith. I'm just throwing out words here to see if they work. Like then you don't have that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if there's not some authority on earth to decide then it's just up to every single person. And by the way, right. I suspect, I more than suspect that someone who says, someone who says, well, this is just proof that none of these doctrines matter. Someone who says that, I, I feel like, well, this is very convenient. Right. Isn't right. it? Yeah. You know, when you, yeah. when you've said, when you've said that the Bible is our only authority and then everyone is free, then therefore, you know, the, you know, to, to decide, interpret for themselves. And therefore it leads to this, all these splits and all this disagreement, very convenient right. at the end of that to say, well, you know, that that just doesn't <laughs> matter. You know, exactly. the church, this is not, exactly. this is not what Christians have believed throughout the history of Christianity. This is not what the, what Christians have believed. Yeah. Well, there's, there's one, you're right, Ken, there's one more paragraph that I want to read, but before I do, I share one more little anecdote. And this is really kind of to Matt's point about, you know, infighting in seminaries, and then even people who are seminary educated fighting with people who aren't. And, and then your, which seminary did you go through? And that's, that's how we can know whether you're good or bad. One of my friends years ago got himself a coffee cup that said, don't confuse your Google search 
with my seminary degree. And he, he just thought that was awesome. Like my seminary degree is what gives me, and I'll say it, magisterial authority over your Google search, you know? And I, I used to think that was hilarious because I have a seminary degree myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man, we seminary dudes, we've got an edge, you know, don't confuse your Google search with my seminary degree. So I got a coffee cup after I became Catholic and I put it up in front of him and said, don't confuse your seminary degree with the magisterial teaching and authority of the Catholic Church. <laughs> anyway, I've learned some things. But the point is, as both of you have said, there has to be a way to sort this out. And it's not somebody's seminary degree. It is the authority of the church that comes down to us through the deposit of faith, through the teacher's and then here comes this last, and I mean the, uh, the apostolic successors of the original apostles. But then here's this, now we're going to be unapologetically Catholic in our ecclesiology here in 816. This needs to be said. 816. The sole church of Christ is that which our Savior, after his resurrection, listen carefully, entrusted to Peter's pastoral care, commissioning him and the other apostles to extend and rule it. This church, constituted and organized as a society in the present world, subsists in the Catholic Church. Like if you're gonna if you're gonna go and find the whole thing, you find it inside the Catholic Church, which it says going on here is governed by the successor of Peter and by the bishops in communion with him. The Second Vatican Council's decree on ecumenism explains, for it is through Christ's Catholic Church alone, which is the universal help toward salvation, that the fullness of the means of salvation can be obtained. It was to the apostolic college alone, of which Peter is the head, that we believe that our Lord entrusted all the blessings of the new covenant in order to establish on earth the one body of Christ into which all those should be fully incorporated who belong in any way to the people of God. Now, careful here, careful here. We, the catechism and we are not saying that there's nothing outside of the visible structures and the formal structures of the Catholic church. Rather, we're saying something more positive. We're saying that everything, all, is within the Catholic Church, which is not the same thing as saying nothing exists outside of it. And I'll give you a quick little illustration, then toss it to you guys, and then, Ken, you can do the next section. This last week, I was at our headquarters, Coming Home Network headquarters, and um, I was set up in one of the, the rooms that we have there, and our office manager bought an iron so that I could iron my clothes there at our headquarters. And I plugged it in to the wall. And like I do with an iron, I started touching the, you know, the iron to see, and it was heating up. And I waited about as long as you wait for an iron to heat up. And I put my clothes out and I started ironing and the wrinkles were not disappearing. So I touch it again. I'm like, oh, it never got past a certain point of heat here. It, and, and then I thought it's not ironing out the wrinkles, but it's warm. There is electricity coming through it. There's warmth coming through it, but it won't take all the wrinkles out. <laughs> and so I thought, well, maybe I, I'll plug it into a different outlet. And so I did. And by golly, it heated up all the way. And then I could iron out all the wrinkles. That's a metaphor, a word picture, my best attempt at trying to explain what the catechism is doing here. It's saying there is grace. There is God's hand, God's work. And God is at work in lots of different ways outside of the visible structures of the Catholic Church. But the fullness, everything you need to iron out, all the wrinkles, all the power, the whole enchilada subsists in the Catholic Church. And so the call then is a positive one. Plug in to the fullness of where all of that power and resource is available. And that's as much as I'll say right there. And well, all I can know, say that is I've never a... ironed an enchilada, but you can do something with an iron to make a panini. <laughs> we sometimes we mix metaphors, Matt. <laughs> Sorry, you know, Ken, I was what, gonna. What were you gonna say? <laughs> well, 
this profound question has come to me in the midst of that little illustration, and that is it, or 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 a confession. I had no idea that you could get different levels of current by plugging into different sockets. Um, if the iron wasn't heating up, I would have thought you just had to, you had to turn the dial on the iron that you didn't have it set well, right. Trust me, I it never did, crossed I did my all mind that, that you. Yeah, it, it it wouldn't cross my mind that you put it into a different socket. But anyway, yeah, I understand your point. I understand your point. <laughs> okay, the next section that we're going to look at here in the Catechism is titled Wounds to Unity. Okay, so we've looked at the basis of unity. We've looked at what it means. We've looked at it from several different angles. What about Wounds to Unity? And I, I got to tell you up front, guys, the three paragraphs that I'm going to be reading here and talking about briefly are undoubtedly, they are the three paragraphs in the catechism that I wind up reading more often than any other in my dealings with Protestants and my dealings with Catholics and Protestants who are becoming Catholic and all that. So these, I can almost, yeah. I can almost recite these without even looking, but let's yeah. begin. 817. In fact, in this one and only church of God, from its very beginnings, there arose certain rifts divisions, which the apostle strongly censures as damnable. But in subsequent centuries, now we're talking about, I think it's talking about the East-West split, but mainly the Reformation is what it's referring to here, the 16th century. But in subsequent centuries, much more serious dissensions appeared, and large communities became separated from full communion with the Catholic Church, for which often enough, men on both sides were to blame. And then the Catechism quotes Origen, where he says, it's in his uh, homily on Ezekiel chapter 9, where there are sins, there are also divisions, schisms, heresies, and disputes. Where there is virtue, however, there also are harmony and unity from which arise the one heart and the one soul of all believers. What I want to focus in on you two is where the Catechism tells us that in the Reformation, at the Reformation, quote, men on both sides were to blame, unquote. Because it's easy. Here's the thing. Since we all come from Protestant backgrounds, you know, and I was a sincere evangelical Protestant for 20 years before becoming Catholic. Um, I have a lot of sensitivity and a lot of, um, well, love for, for Protestants. And so I, I, I say this maybe to many Catholics, it, it's easy for us Catholics sometimes to identify the blame that exists on the other side at the time of the Reformation. You know, those damn heretics kind of thing, all right? Um, and there was plenty. I mean, I think I could go on and on about this too, but I think of Henry VIII dissolving all of the monasteries in England, confiscating the properties, selling off the lands, piling the, the proceeds into his own treasury, or, or giving it out to his good friends, okay? I think of Henry VIII chopping the head off one of his best friends in the world, St. Thomas More, for refusing to sign off on, his, on this incredibly arrogant move of making himself supreme head of the church in England so that he could divorce his wife. Okay, and that's just, well, that's just a bit about Henry VIII. There is so much more that could be said, plenty of sin on the side of the reformers. But what I want to focus on here is the other side of the equation for our Catholic listeners and for our Protestant listeners. There was plenty of sin within the church at the time, and I want to highlight a bit of it. I think about Erasmus, priest, New Testament scholar, who edited a, a, a Greek translate, I mean, a Greek version of the New Testament that was very scholarly at his time. He described his experience with the priests in Rome visiting there. And this is what he said With my own ears, I heard the most loathsome blasphemies against Christ and his apostles. Many acquaintances of mine have heard priests of the Curia, that is the Roman, the, the, uh, the church in Rome, the leadership in Rome. Many acquaintances of mine have heard priests of the Curia utter disgusting words so loudly, even during Mass, that all around them could hear it. Okay, now I've heard some strange things at Mass, you guys. I'm sure you have too. Have you ever heard a priest up at the altar uttering disgusting words so loudly that, you, that everyone could hear it? I don't think so. I don't think you have. 
And that's just the priests. Surely the bishops were better, right? No. At the time, in fact, and I'm going back to the early 16th century, late 15th, early 16th century. At the time, it was common for bishops to purchase their bishoprics, sometimes more than one. And often they didn't even live, Matt, Kenny, they didn't even live in the diocese they ruled. They lived somewhere else and they treated their diocese as a, uh, well, a source of revenue, money that they could use to live opulent lives, um, you know, fund various wars that they were carrying on, games, things like that. So you had a lot of sin in the priesthood at the time. There was much sin in the episcopacy at the time. And the same with the popes, the same with popes. In his Oxford Dictionary of Popes, the uh, great historian J.N.D. Kelly, he describes Pope Leo X, who was the pope at the time when Luther first posted his 95 Theses. He describes Leo X as, and I quote, a devious and double-tongued politician and inveterate nepotist, unquote. You, know, you read that, it's pretty bad. Yale historian Roland Bainton described Leo X like this. Leo X was as elegant and as indolent as a Persian cat. His chief preeminence lay in his ability to squander the resources of the Holy See on carnivals, war, gambling, and the chase, that is hunting. In fact, I've read that Pope Leo X would walk around often wearing hunting boots, and so people would kneel down and kiss the toe of his hunting boot. Okay, so no, we Catholics have to come to grips and accept the fact that the church at the time was in a very, very bad state. In fact, St. Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits, he actually advised good Catholics against going to Rome, lest they be corrupted. And I, as I read that and I, and I think about it, I, I try to imagine Pope St. John Paul II, Pope Benedict XVI, Pope Francis, imagine them saying, whatever you do, guys, take your pilgrimages to Fatima, go to the Holy Land, do not go to Rome unless you want your faith destroyed. I mean, can you imagine that? Can you imagine it? Okay. But, but one more quote to kind of seal the deal here. Pope Hadrian VI, who became the Pope I believe in 1521, right during the time of, or 1522, when the Reformation was getting off the ground, really. And uh, sadly, he was only in the chair of St. Peter for a short time. But listen to what he wrote. We know, this is Pope Hadrian, the, this is the, the Holy Father of the Church. We know that for years there have been many abominable offenses in spiritual matters and violations of the commandments committed at the Holy See. Yes, that everything, in fact, has been perverted. Okay, here's a Pope saying, look, there have been many violations of the commandments of God committed at the Holy See. In fact, everything has been perverted, everything. Then I finish the quotation. The first thing that must be done is to reform the curia, the origin of all the evil. There was sin on both sides. Gentlemen, anything you'd like to, um, <laughs> any sins you'd like to add to that? Two quick things. Other, uh, just to sure. say that uh, sometimes the um, there are people who go into like the apologetic cycle of madness, which is to say, oh, well, this group did this and this group will come back and say, well, this people killed that many people. Well, that people, right. you know, well, then you guys went on and killed this many people, but then you guys went on and killed that many. Like it's a road to nowhere. Is a road to nowhere. It's like yeah. tracing back the Bengals and Steelers rivalry. Like who in that rivalry was the first one to put a dirty hit on the other team that then caused the other team to want to put a dirty hit back, right? And so that and now it's just like a bloodbath every time the Bengals and Steelers play. Or and that's just football. You can talk about the world stage for all of that. Um, but the other thing I will say is that I think anybody who's been part of any kind of Protestant church, no matter how big or small, knows that you don't have to look far in any church you've ever been to. To see, no, no. <laughs> you know, how easy it can be. I mean, I saw this in every single congregation I was ever a part of on some level or another, to some degree or another. And I will tell you this, you don't have to even go looking at your church community to find it because even the holiest family that you know, the strongest Christian family that you know, 
trust me, you do not want to see what it looks like in their house when they're trying to put their kids to bed. <laughs> I'm just saying, like it is. This is this is Pure part sin. of what it. Pearson, I'm not now you're gonna, really descending. I'm not going to excuse now really... anybody. But I'm <laughs> saying going that if into you want to trace man. back okay. and talk about like who did worse stuff, okay. that's a road to absolutely okay. nowhere. The reason I wanted to emphasize that phrase from paragraph 817, that there was sin on both sides. Okay. The reason I wanted to emphasize that is because of paragraph 818, which says, however, one cannot charge with the sin of the separation those who at present are born into these communities, and he's, he's talking about the communities that resulted from the separation, and are brought up in the faith of Christ, and the Catholic Church accepts them with respect and affection as brothers. All who have been justified by faith in baptism are incorporated into Christ. They therefore have a right to be called Christians, and with good reason are accepted as brothers in the Lord by the children of the Catholic Church. And here's what is so important. You see that a distinction is being made between those who caused the shattering of Christ's church in the 16th century, and even then, only God knows how much culpability each one of them has before him. But but the catechisms make a distinction. It's basically saying whatever guilt attaches to those who were alive at the time, and there was sin on both sides, we cannot hold those accountable that are born after that into these separated communities, Baptist churches, Presbyterian churches, the Anglican church, Nazarenes, on and on and on, and are brought up in the faith of Christ. And the Catechism says, flat out, we accept them with respect and affection as brothers and sisters in Christ. And you know what? As I've said many, many times, I do not believe for an instant that I became a Christian when I became Catholic. I mean, I, I know before God, before all of mankind, I know that for 20 years before I became Catholic, I knew Jesus Christ and I belonged to him and I experienced his grace in my life. And so this gives me tremendous sympathy for Protestants that we become involved with. And this is really the heart of our ministry here at the Coming Home Network, is to be able to have that love and that sympathy. Any comments, gentlemen? Yeah, I, I'll just share one anecdote for those who maybe didn't hear me share this in the previous episode. And that, first of all, this is one of the most comforting and encouraging texts of the Catechism that I read while I was on my journey into the church. The night that I came into the church, which is Easter Vigil, the Saturday before Easter in 2019, um, after the Mass was over, I was handed by our Director of uh, Religious Education an envelope, a small white envelope. And inside of it was a certificate uh, that I had, uh, noting that I had come into full communion with the Catholic Church that night. And interestingly, on that certificate, it said, uh, you know, Kenneth Burchard, born June 4th, 1969, baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit at the Vineyard Christian Fellowship in Salt Lake City, Utah, has come into full communion with the Catholic Church, and then it has the date. And I just thought, oh, that's the Catholic heart. It's just like it, yeah. its hand was always on my shoulder and now it was wrapping me in its arms and saying, you've always been, you know, our uh, family, but now you're, now you're home. So that's, that's a very yeah, personal and, and profound story from my own experience of, of coming home to the Catholic church. And it's reflected right here in the catechism. And that is a mug smashing revelation by that i mean for sure what when when you that that certificate didn't say this certificate certifies that kenny burchard has hereby studied the catechism and passed it like one right. might pass a driver's right. exam <laughs> you know and blah 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 it doesn't it smashes to bits the notion of my seminary degree is better than your Google search and the notion that my yeah. magisterium is smarter than your seminary degree. What is your entry? 
It doesn't matter how smart or dumb you are. People who are babies, people who have intellectual disabilities, people who are on their deathbed and barely conscious, that's the entry, right? It smashes all those things. Yeah, amen, amen. The the reason these One Lord, one faith, one baptism. That's that third thing, right? That I wasn't sure how it fit into the rest of those ones. That's the way it fits. One thing that makes these paragraphs uh, so so important to the ministry we do at the Coming Home Network, you guys, is I debated with someone, I debated with a Catholic about two years ago who was insisting that Protestants were all lost. And his his argument was, now, there, now, now that there is great Catholic apologetics online, no one has an excuse for not going online and learning and becoming Catholic. And I remember I said to him, wait, wait, are you, you think about a mother at home. Let's say she has five kids. She has six kids. She's ironing. Her iron doesn't heat up. And so after a while, she <laughs> takes it and she decides to plug it into it. No. Anyway, <laughs> into a, you know, she's ironing clothes. She's cooking meals all day long. And, and she's a sincere Baptist who loves Christ, was raised in the Baptist church. Her father, her, you know, her brothers were Baptist. Are you saying that she should be able to go online and learn the Catholic faith, and if she doesn't, she's accountable. And he said, "Yeah." He was basically saying there was no, no there was no room for anything other than that. Okay. Well, what about her ten year old who has reached the age of reason? Right? Is that kid guilty in the same <laughs> yeah. way? I mean, come on. Yeah. Okay. So, paragraph eight seventeen is saying these divisions have happened. Christendom was shattered in the sixteenth century, and it was a terrible thing, and there was sin on both sides. Paragraph 818 says, but we do not blame those that are born into all these communities now and raised in the faith of Christ. And then 819 fills that out in a way that is very powerful. Furthermore, the reason here, okay, this is the reason Protestants are to be accepted. Furthermore, many elements of sanctification and truth are found outside the visible confines of the Catholic Church. Something Kenny mentioned a while back at the beginning, early on in this episode. The written word of God, the life of grace, faith, hope, and charity, with the other interior gifts of the Holy Spirit, as well as visible elements. Christ's Spirit uses, here are the words that just come like an anvil, or like a hammer on an anvil to me. Mm-hmm. Christ's Spirit uses these churches and ecclesial communities as means of salvation, whose power derives from the fullness of grace and truth that Christ has entrusted to the Catholic Church. All of these blessings come from Christ, and they lead to him and are in themselves calls to Catholic unity. In short, the treasures that these churches possess, the treasures that these ecclesial communities possess, that the Holy Spirit uses as means of salvation— they may be treasures that have come from the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, but they are treasures. They are treasures nevertheless. And these Protestants have them. They have them. And the Holy Spirit uses these churches as means of salvation. Amen. I'm going to throw it over Amen. to you. Any comments you have and throw it over to Kenny to take the final section here today. Yeah, uh, just real quickly, I would say, you know, what was the most important you know, thing in my universe, right? My my resource, my anchor point, it was this Bible right here. You know where I got it from? The Catholic Church, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, I mean, and it even says this, right? I mean, these are the things that the that the that um, these movements possess. The only thing that I want to say, and I, I don't want to get into it because we're going to get into it when we get into the third mark of the church, is somebody might be confused by this part where it says Christ's Spirit uses these churches and ecclesial communities like what distinction is being made there? I just want to assure people, we will talk about the difference between a church and an ecclesial community here in a couple of episodes. Uh, but rest assured, if you believe in Jesus, this is somehow referring in some way to good things that are happening in your world that are perhaps drawing you towards the fullness of those good things in the Catholic Church. And this is a good place, guys, to to come in for a landing. We, we've been going long, but we also are longing for some kind of resolution right here. And this this last section is very personal to me, to my own journey. This is this show is called On the Journey. And here I find in my own life the the way in which the catechism is helping me, it's helping you, it's helping anyone who's watching 
to be on this journey in a more intentional mm-hmm. way because it is titled toward unity. This is unity. a this is language of movement, language of 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 reversing this trajectory away from unity. No, let's get back to unity. How so? Here's what I want to do. I'm going to read these paragraphs very quickly and share four big ideas and you'll love it guys cuz they all start with the same letter. And so that'll be really great. Toward I'm so unity. I, I, I'm so thankful. I I've been just I, I've been sitting here dying for some hey, alliteration. I gotta be dying. me. I gotta be me. <laughs> okay. Toward can unity. I be? Toward unity. Paragraph eight twenty. Christ bestowed unity on his church from the beginning. This unity we believe subsists in the Catholic Church as something she can never lose. And we hope that it will continue Mm. to increase until the end of time. Christ always gives his church the gift of unity, but the church must always pray and work to maintain, reinforce, and perfect the unity that Christ wills for her. This is why Jesus himself prayed at the hour of his passion and does not cease praying to his Father for the unity of his disciples. Quote, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, I am in you, may they also be one in us, so that the world may know that you have sent me. The desire to recover the unity of all Christians is a gift of Christ and a call of the Holy Spirit. 821. Certain things are required in order to respond adequately to this call. Number one. A permanent renewal of the church in greater fidelity to her vocation. Such renewal is the driving force of the movement toward unity. Number two, conversion of the heart of the faithful, or as the faithful try to live holier lives according to the gospel. For it is the unfaithfulness of the members to Christ's gift which causes divisions. Number three, prayer in common, because Change of heart and holiness of life, along with public and private prayer for the unity of Christians, should be regarded as the soul of the whole ecumenical movement and merits in the name of spiritual ecumenism. Number four, fraternal knowledge of each other. That means getting together as brothers and getting to know each other. Number five, ecumenical formation of the faithful and especially of priests. Number six, dialogue among theologians and meetings among Christians of the different churches and communities. And number seven, collaboration among Christians in various areas of service to mankind. Human service is the idiomatic phrase. In other words, we got to work together on common causes. And then finally, paragraph 822, and I'll share a few final thoughts. 822. Concern for achieving unity involves the whole church, faithful and clergy alike. But we must realize that this holy objective, the reconciliation of all Christians in the unity of the one and only Church of Christ, transcends human powers and gifts. That is why we place all our hope in the prayer of Christ for the church, in the love of the Father for us, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. What can we make of all of this? I suggest four ideas, and these are very personal to me. And these are how I, and I'll say it this way, I ended my personal protest against the Catholic Church by embracing the things that the Catechism calls all Christians to here. Four ideas. Number one, to achieve unity, what I'm taking out of this is that I must positively want unity. I must positively want it. So if I'm nursing division in my heart, I want to be angry. I want to, you know, chuck bombs at the other guy. I've switched mm-hmm. sides. Now I'm the good guy. You're the bad guy. Uh, and I and I don't want to be unified with you. Then it just won't happen. It won't happen in the heart of someone who doesn't want it. Number yep. two, I must, here we go again, prayerfully work for unity. First, positively want it. Second, prayerfully <laughs> work for unity. I've got to be on my knees with Jesus, praying his prayer mm-hmm. for unity and 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 prayerfully working toward all that that 
entails and means. Third, I must patiently wait while God Mm. moves each person. It's not on my time scale. It may not happen in my lifetime, but I, during my course, I must be involved in this and be Mm -hmm. patient while God is also at work in the hearts of each person. And then fourth, I must personally walk in unity. Mm. And for this, I get insight from Pope Benedict XVI in his his Principles of Catholic Theology, in which he discusses the unique challenges of unity, particularly with Protestant denominations. And he basically concludes that the work is not as simple as all these churches just come back because there's so much difference in confession and theology and systems in all of these churches. And then a person in one of those churches may believe very differently from the church he's in. And so what he basically says is from a Protestant perspective, the way this tends to happen is one person and then another person Mm -hmm. and then another person and another. And that in our work is really what we see. And that's why I said for me, guys, my work in being part of the unity of the church was to end my own personal protest against the Catholic Church mm-hmm. and then walk back toward her, you know, positively, prayerfully, patiently, and personally, and little by little and step by step. And I just leave it with you guys to say I encourage anybody watching to, uh, to enter that journey as well. Can you just repeat the four phrases yeah. one more time? There are these. Positively want unity, prayerfully work for unity, patiently wait while God unifies the heart of each person, personally walk in unity. See, those are the things. Yeah, I I thought you were going to add pompously wipe the floor with all who disagree. But no, pompously, pompously. Wipe, Even your background, I thought you were going to say praise and <laughs> worship. No, no, praise no. and worship. Yeah, no, Thanks, no, you, no, Kenny, you said it well, <laughs> and in, and in those phrases, you sum up really well what it says there in that last paragraph about what it takes. Yeah, we have to want it. We have to want it. We should be the ones praying for it because we're the yeah. ones who believe that Christ established His church with this with oneness as an essential characteristic so we should want it we should be praying for it we should be working for it yep you're dead on Amen. and dead then on. you bring your gifts and contribute them to the unity of the church as a whole yeah. and unified including kinney's gift of pentecostal word smithery or whatever <laughs> sorry i went too hard it's for that hard one yeah, it's break. been a long episode it's been a long episode <laughs> But we okay. thank you for sticking okay. with us for go back and read these paragraphs yeah. in their entirety for themselves and read back and reflect on we read back on these all the time as part of our work in the coming home network to remind us what we're even supposed to be doing. Like, are we doing this as an apostolate the way that we ought to be doing yeah. it? It's a constant point of reflection for us. Uh, speaking of our, of our apostolate, we're online at chnetwork.org if you want to find all kinds of free resources to help you on your journey. Those resources are made free and available to you because of our partners and mission who generously support us. If you want to add your support to theirs and partner along with them and us, uh, go to chnetwork.org donate. And again, if you're looking for fellowship and community to uh, walk with others toward unity, uh, please check out our online community, and that is community.chnetwork.org. Gentlemen, Ken Kenny, have a wonderful day. We'll talk to you soon. Yep, we'll see you soon. Bye, guys. Peace.